Welcome to this week's edition of Attica Shrug, the podcast about Southern culture and politics this week. Um, so we're doing something kind of different these next few weeks. Uh, Chad, David, and I all work at the same summer camp. We've been in Mars Hill, North Carolina uh, for the last month, and Chad lost his voice. So we've been interviewing different people that we know on lots of different topics. We have an interview with April McGregor, who uh, works in and knows a lot about Southern foodways and music. And we have an interview with our friend Phil Blank, who is a Yankee from Philadelphia, who's lived in the South for over half his life and um, has played a lot of Southern music and knows a lot about Southern culture. And also we have an interview with New Orleans musician Jesse McBride, uh, piano player, musical historian. Yeah. Man About Town. Yeah. Uh, that one's not recorded yet, but coming up. It'll be in the future. Uh, we also have, sitting in the background, um, special guest producer uh, Carter Williams. Hey there. So that's going to be these three episodes, and they're going to be a little bit different. I think the first one's going to be um, April McGregor. Uh, Today we're sitting on the front porch at Roddy Branch. You can hear the uh, cicadas in the background and the Katie Dids. Uh, the air rifle's being pumped. Somebody's tuning a banjo. Uh, this is out of bullets. Uh. Anyway, it's for the full effect. So I hope you like these episodes. Uh, they're different, but I think they're good. Maybe we'll have more like this soon. Um, we hope Chad gets his voice back at some point in the future. See ya. <laughs> Farmer's daughter. Oh, oh, yeah, you can. Oh, Formerly yeah. a volcanologist. Yeah, which lifetime? Um, yeah, any of that's fine. Whatever is relevant to what you're talking about. Well, I, I don't know what we're talking about yet. So. <laughs> so this this is why I'm a good ethnographer. We've already been recording for thirty seconds. Exactly. On the record. Uh, do you want me to do like an intro for the show, or do you want to just we'll be talking and then? It uh, do you want to add it in after? Sure, I'll do that. Um, or we could do it now. I mean, if you remember it. <laughs> nah. I'll edit it. I'll, say, it, I'll cut it up. You've said it like, like 23 times. And I forget I it every time. It's my least favorite part. <laughs> Welcome sure. to Atticus Shrug, uh-huh. the podcast about uh-huh. Southern uh-huh. culture, okay. movie, music, and uh, soft drinks. Soft drinks. Uh, <laughs> mainly also known as uh, Cokes. Cokes. Sody Pops. I thought you said Pop up here. No, no. There's still Coke. Coke. I, I've only ever heard Coke. Yeah, I might. But Coke. weirdly... I don't know. And in Chicago, they say pop, and yeah. Mississippi and Chicago, like, you know, there's the joke yeah. that Chicago is the, um, or the Mississippi Delta is a suburb of Chicago. You ever heard that? Wouldn't it work the other way around, though? I haven't heard that, but wouldn't it work the other or way around? Or maybe Mississippi Chicago. Chicago all yeah. the culture? Actually, that might be what people say. I think, I think you hear people say both. Yeah. Chicago is a suburb of the Mississippi Delta. Well, but, I, and they say pop, but 
I don't know. I'm not from the Delta, so in the hills, they definitely say Coke. Yeah, I didn't realize until when I was at that conference in Durham that that area is so connected to Philadelphia, that people are saying, because of the old... Was well, it an old like uh, stage road from there ran to Philadelphia? So you could get from Durham to Philadelphia quicker than you could get from Durham to Charlotte. I didn't. I never heard that. I never heard that at all. I think it was the Quaker because all the Quakers and this one. Well, well, okay. So you, I do know just because I've done a little bit of like um, the Highland Scots or whatever. So in the Cape Fear area was all Highland Scots, and there was a big connection between the Cape Fear area, which is like Fayette, around Fayetteville, like before mm-hmm. Fayetteville was what Fable is now. It was just like a, you know, um, the frontier or whatever. Is A lot of those people were connected to um, Philadelphia and outside Philadelphia. Like a lot of the Highland Scots came in through Philadelphia and then we're in like Bucks County and those regions, like the rural regions around Philadelphia and then came down into North Carolina. So there's, so there definitely was some uh-huh. transportation route between those two things. Yeah, it was it was an architecture conference. I was just talking about how they're architecturally connected, but I think they were fairly connected. Huh. Sorry, I'm just checking the levels on this. It seems okay. Um, well, on that note, so I wanted to ask you, because we keep talking on this show about um, what is the South, what's not the South. We mainly determined that Ohio is the South. Hmm. Oh, Appalachia, Ohio, perhaps. Right, because it's Appalachia. And they, then there are large African-American populations, I guess, in some of the cities because of northern migration, perhaps? Yeah, but that go all the way back to the Civil War rather than the huge mm-hmm. migrations, um, like right after the Civil War because it was just jumping the river. Yeah. A lot of people, well, Beloved is said yeah. there. Right. right, yeah. I mean, yeah, well, that's Tony Morrison's personal history as well, yeah. right? So. Yeah, but so we keep trying to determine what is the South, what makes the South South. But we're from all from very different regions. And when I'm here in Appalachia during the summer, I notice like lots of stuff that I think is different from where I grew up in Florida or is very different from where I live in New Orleans, but I can't always put my finger on it. Mm -hmm. And then you're from Mississippi, but not from, air quotes, Mississippi, Mississippi, right? Like you're not from the Delta or Biloxi. uh, Oh, is Biloxi something people know? Uh, on the Gulf Coast, yeah. Okay. Um, so, what do you see any differences between like what makes where you're from in Mississippi like different from here, or different from other places in the South, or anything that connects it? I mean, Missis the hills of Mississippi. Mm-hmm. I mean, some people refer to it as Little Appalachia, so mm-hmm. it's pretty similar to this area, more similar to this area for sure than um, right now what the Pe- what a lot of the Piedmont or specifically the Chapel Hill or Triangle area looks like. Um, to the hills of Mississippi are um, historically um, really small um, farmers um, comparatively um, to the the Delta on you know to the west and then the um, the Black Hills or the Black Belt mm. to the to the east. That part of there's like a there's like re- a strip of red clay that runs down kind of the middle and up to the northeastern corner of Mississippi, mm. and that's all considered the hills. It's generally where the poor folks lived. Because it was poor red clay, and you couldn't farm it as well. Yeah, not yeah. The soil is not as rich, and um, historically there are very few. Um, like basically no plantations in mm-hmm. the hills and um, and, a real, and a small minority of slaveholders in general. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the hills region has a lower um, African-American population than for sure the Delta and also f- um, like um, around 
like Columbus, mm -hmm. and, um, the black belt there, the, the black belt that yep. goes into that part of Mississippi. Mm -hmm. There, I mean, still in the there's a little bit um, in the county that I grew up in for sure. Um, there's three towns, or, or three, really four, but. Bruce, Callan City, and Vardaman, and the town that I'm from, Vardaman, was definitely, like, the whitest town uh -huh. of the three, um, but um, I don't really know the history of the black population in that part of Callan County, but it's still considered to be, I think people mostly probably moved in, because we have a lot of, like, just to the, a lot of the surrounding counties, there were more, uh -huh. you know, plantations, plantation economy, that kind of stuff, so probably a lot of people moved into there, but, I mean, yeah, the um, well, uh, remind me of the question again. <laughs> what's no, the no, difference? Like, well, yeah, what's the difference or what's the connection? It's like I right. I, don't know, yeah. I mean, I think um, one of the connections, you know, in, in um, I mean, even in Appalachia, right? You have like Johnson City, you have cities that mm -hmm. had a lot of trade early on and transportation through railroads and that sort of thing. And they become more industrial. The part of Mississippi that I'm from, you know, it just feels like we're. 100 years behind most other places just because there were never it was just isolated as a as a lot of um Appalachia is it's just harder to get to therefore there were less people coming in less influence you know um in the same way less people documenting what was going on there less people um moving in and out and changing the population um and I mean I think I think it just is still you know they certainly wouldn't call it this but you know, it's still a much more of a col like collective ownership. You know, mm -hmm. um, they're still not as um, there's like a, a, an anti-capitalist sort of undercurrent there that mm -hmm. they probably don't recognize. But you know, there's it's, it's just a very it's still in the old the old way of um, Sharing this, you know, sort of gift economy, sharing economy, and all those types of things. But I think it's isolation more than anything that kind of keeps those older traditions alive. And it's never really, I mean, we've had really small, like, garment factories and stuff that have come in there, but in general, it never really left its, like, agrarian roots. So I think that's a large part of it. When you say anti capitalist, you mean basically in the form of resentment rather than uh, some sort of political movement, more like. Uh, resenting bigger bosses and bigger um yeah i mean there's um one of the things that i could uh, on a really personal level um i mean if i think of like the values that like my dad taught me or whatever who you know lived in Callan county his whole life um and you know he he like the only kind of people that he disliked were what he called people who like um, like stood around and told other people what to do mm -hmm. and like without actually participating in the work mm -hmm. like that's like a lot of resentment bosses. towards that like bosses in general yeah. and then like my dad owned his own business or whatever but he never ever tried to grow his business it was he was just a tradesman and mm -hmm. that's what I mean that very much so that idea of just like one-to-one -one, like kind of honest work I do the work you pay me to, you know what you know, a, a fair price for it, you know, that kind of idea. And the other thing that I remember um, as a kid early on, um, we had like a, one of my mom's like cousins um, married a guy who had like some money or whatever. And I remember saying like, how did he get all his money? And my dad said, robbing and stealing from folks, I reckon, you know, there's just like kind of idea um, <laughs> that's like... <laughs> I mean, they don't really realize it, but it's not very different from, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of the 
uh, you know, they're, they're not political in that sense, but um, the ideas are, are very much, you know, um, just anarchic in general. And, and um, Yeah, well, that's what I always say on here, and I repeat it many times, but like, when I talk to my dad about, like, local issues, it's, it's complete Marxist reading of how, like, land use works and politics work. But if I, like, were to say that to him, he'd be horrified because he doesn't think that at all. But he'll, you know, he believes local government's like, well, you know, they got all the land, they got all the money, they got all the power. It's like, yeah, I know that. That's a hardcore leftist position, but uh, he doesn't yeah. believe it that way. Yeah, my dad is hardcore leftist. I mean, and they, they know that they're... But even I, my dad and my and my mom both they have some awareness. Mm. But they they don't even know who Marx is, so they sure for sure wouldn't know that. Well, that's fine too, yeah. <laughs> right? But they certainly like I always try to explain because um, in in like in folklore and like sociology and stuff they um, talk a little they talk about um, like the gift economy and stuff, but mm. it's not even the gift economy because in my um, like when when I come home, like my dad knows that I really love like fried crappie, right? So instead, so what he'll do is he'll just call around and say, "Y'all got any fish?" You know, mm-hmm. and like with no idea that he that he's gonna pay them back for it. Right. You know, it's just that if they have it, they would give it to him. Yeah. But it's people that you know he's known his whole life, and you know, and anytime anybody calls you and and um, to ask to borrow anything, whether it's your vehicle or your trailer or whatever. I mean, it's just that, whereas I, where I live now, I, even though I have a lot of friends, I don't have anybody that I would call and just, you know, expect them to give me something without me bringing over lots of gifts in return, you know, and and like making kind of big deal out of it and being like incredibly appreciative. Like they don't even, it's weird in that, it's not even you don't even hear a lot of like thank yous and stuff it's just this general idea of like if i have it you can have it if if you have it i can have it yes this has been a major issue like it it, with me and my wife so i was trying to explain this to her because my dad was a boat captain he's retired now and so when i was growing up we would always have fish in the house but not because necessarily he caught fish but somebody would drop off whatever they caught at my grandmother's house or if they had extra, my dad would end up with it. Or if he had extra, it would go somewhere else. And so um, we had, you know, what, whatever. So people knew what fish my grandmother liked, and they'd bring it by if they had it. Right. And my dad always had, like, amberjack or, or triggerfish. And I like triggerfish, so whoever had triggerfish would end up at our house. So now my grandmother isn't alive anymore, and my dad doesn't fish anymore, and the town has changed a lot. Right. So my wife... Um, really likes good fresh fish and she asked me like uh like how well how do you get like where has good fish and i don't know like i don't know and she complains about like well there's no you can't find good fish in america i'm like no you can't find good fish at the grocery store right and i don't know how to help you find good fish because it was just always there right but i think you're right that doesn't exist anymore and i think like that generation of people feel that that it doesn't exist anymore but they don't have any name right. for it or any kind of thought about it and not to make it a completely political discussion because it's bigger than that, but mm-hmm. that I think they've been convinced because uh, right-wing media and propaganda is very good mm-hmm. that um, it doesn't have anything to do with the larger economic systems that are being placed on them. It has to do with, like, uh, uh, I don't know, millennials or society being weird or, you know. Or immigrants. The future, or immigrants, or, I you mean, know, whatever. that's probably where I live, much more of the idea. But, I mean, my parents are not... They definitely don't watch Fox News. They hate all that stuff. But well, they're lucky. they're in the super minority, mm-hmm. and they feel isolated. And mm-hmm. 
and lonely. <laughs> so they, it's certainly the trend around there. Um, something you said made me think, uh, oh, about, uh, yes. Okay, so I have this beef with um, food media in general, but um, specifically like the Southern Foodways Alliance. And um, I mean, I, I think they do really great work or whatever, but. All right, Southern Foodways Alliance beef, <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> yeah, I, they do really great work, so it's not total beef. But one of the things that I'm always harping on is um, that in food media in, in general, but they talk specifically about Southern food, which is what I know more about and have stronger feelings about. Um, but it's always talking about commercial versions mm-hmm. of Southern food. And if you look at just like what's available in the market um, and Southern food, especially where I live, you would think we ate nothing but like, you know, sausage biscuits and like mm-hmm. fried chicken and like tater logs or whatever. You know, there's no, um, there's only a, teeny tiny amount of like the food culture or food traditions mm-hmm. and and they have to work in a market economy right so mm-hmm. you know no one's gonna like shell fresh peas to sell because you would never be able to make the amount of money right. that you need to make for the labor that goes into shelling peas and etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, anyway so that's like my um, that we have this idea that like the most popular foods in the south I mean and, and now yes okay sure they are it's like biscuits and fried chicken but in reality you know, the traditions are much more diverse than that, but mm-hmm. there's no way of getting at them because look kind of like you, you can't go to the store and buy the fish that you're used right. to getting, but you also can't, you know, you can't, there are no, it's a region in general without restaurants, except for now there's like, you know, fast food restaurants, mm-hmm. but in like gas stations that sell like some food, but most food was consumed at home. So how, as an outsider, mm-hmm. do you write about that or do you, you know, promote that um, or even know about or it. even know that it exists right. like so it's it's very hidden it's hard to um you know it's hard to access um but it certainly doesn't mean that it's not there and it doesn't mm-hmm. exist and 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 now you know in in 2018 mainly because you know people didn't value their own culture mm-hmm. and because you know more and more in order to make it you know everyone has to work women have to work you know mm-hmm. um out of the house so there's more need for like convenience and the quality of food in general has definitely suffered from that but um that's just like if you read about food you're reading about food for sale Mm -hmm. and that's a very different thing from food that's you know made often grown made because even today um even you know i was talking to um alice gerard the um old-time bluegrass musician or whatever, and she was kind of talking about her experience in um, Appalachia and stuff, and, and a lot of the food being really... Because she lived in Galax, Virginia, for a lot of years, and a lot of the food's super simple, but, like, she was talking about Luther Davis, this famous fiddle player, and, you know, he, like, grew almost everything that he ate, and, you know, he ate really simply, but always fresh. Like, the food was super fresh, and, you know, he grew his own garden until he was, like, in his... He died when he was in his 90s. Uh-huh. Um, so that idea of, like... You know, we talk a lot about, like, good food and slow food and, you know, um, and there's this idea that food in the grocery stores and, like, these rural areas and in most of Mississippi is, is terrible, and it is. But, like, most people don't mind. They just want it to be cheap to supplement the better stuff that's still, you know, there's still a lot of people, I would say the majority of people, either have some kind of, like, garden or have access to it because, uh-huh. like, my dad, like, he always grows three times the amount of food that he can possibly eat because 
it's a way to be able to give stuff away to people and that's important to them it's like you know well, there's a, the whole, what you were talking about before, this economy of reciprocity where right. you don't have to bring a, a bushel basket of corn when somebody gives you crappie, but they know that eventually down the road they right. can call on that. And one of the things from what you were talking about with um, uh, commercial food and all is that when we look back, if you want to look at what people used to eat, mostly you have to rely on literary accounts uh, rather than occasionally there's I mean there's cookbooks and stuff but even that's a different thing from yeah. how people eat in their house and always have and quotidian life is not well documented there's a, a thing I've read a few times where people have this theory that it used to be super common for almost everybody to sleep and then have a waking period right. in the middle of the night hmm. and mm -hmm. I have no idea whether it's true or not but right. they look for clues in uh, diaries and literary accounts because nobody sits down and says this is what my day-to-day -day life looks like this is what right. I ate today uh, like maybe a few people do but uh, mostly they don't I looked at I actually have some old diaries from my family and some of the women's diaries have well the women were the only ones who kept the diaries mm -hmm. but they'll have um, for lack of anything else uh, what was on the menu, uh, more likely it's went to prayer meeting and that's a whole mm -hmm, uh, entry mm -hmm. or whatever. Right. But, uh, um, yeah, just getting some sort of document of anything that happened before contemporary times and then when you go in with the ethnographer's eye, mm -hmm. that transforms and changes what it is that you're observing because, for one thing, your company, and for another thing, people, uh, I, I think... What you eat a lot of times carries a lot of class connotation that people don't necessarily want to let, the same way that people now don't want to let you know that they live exclusively on McDonald's. Right. Uh, 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 some older people might not want to let you know that they live on greens with a little bit of fat back and right. some beans. Right. Yeah, beans and cornbread, that kind of idea. Um, yeah, um, one of the one of the places that you can see the variety of food that people had is a lot of, um, and and it's often women who had the um, the garden journals where they will tell you kind of what they're what they're planting and what they're pulling out of the out of the gardens and they're um, you know it's 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 a lot of food and it's very complex and so we kind of know um, and there are no recipe books that reflect what they were what they were um, what they were taking and definitely in the last you know fifty. 75 years of like kind of the community well maybe even yes yeah, like 75 years or the community cookbook era like what people were eating is mostly not reflected at all in the community cookbooks they tend to be um especially in the last 50 years almost all the casseroles and kind of different foods you know yeah. sort of sort of this like you know, Betty Crockerization of the South and stuff, and 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 the country. It's not well, I think that's why the, the idea is: why would you need a recipe book to cook what everybody already cooks? Right. I mean, and even I, I have tried to. Um, when my grandfather died, food was super important to him. So, sort of in his memory, I just made a little um, cookbook just for our family or whatever. And because like my siblings and I. Um, I'm really the only one who learned specifically how like how to cook from them and so I was trying to write down you know how to make like snap beans you know and and it feels very silly to write it down in, re in reality like I don't know how to tell someone how to do it in in specific terms in the way that you would measure out you know um, 
in the way that like kind of modern recipes are written yeah. or whatever. So, um, I mean, I did it, but it was really hard to even get myself to do it because it just feels like you shouldn't have to do it. It's just like, it's not, you know, and it's not that it's not, it's not that it's not complicated or that I shouldn't say complicated, but it's not that it's not specific. Like there are, it's very specific. Like they have very specific ideas of like what's under seasoned or what's not cooked long enough or what's cooked too long or what size the beans should be, you know, when you pick them and how they go in. And, and, and a, a huge part of the problem is it doesn't do you any good to have a recipe for, um, you know, stri- the old timey string beans. If you don't have access to old timey string beans, cause you can't buy them in the grocery store. You know, um, here in the mountains, they're a lot more common still, and they've been held onto within the culture. But it's a lot less true in Mississippi because I think it's just a smaller population, so more you know, a smaller area in general. And you, and I think a big, big difference between Appalachian here is that, you know, um, it's easier to think about these things to me when you look at music because it's been so documented. But um, less so in Appalachian food, but to a certain extent, just through Foxfire and things like that, it's been, it's just a much, it's just a heavily, it captures people's imaginations, right? So it's been a much more heavily documented area, but whenever people come in and they document, they change the culture because they're recognizing the value of the culture in a way. So people tend to hold on to those traditions if they know that someone thinks they're worthwhile to record. And, I mean, uh, like, Doc Watson would have never, may have never played the acoustic guitar if um, if he wasn't, I think it was, like, Ralph Rensler or someone who encouraged him to do so. He was, like, basically playing, you know, Elvis covers or whatever. So I think that's true for a lot of, um, a lot of cultural stuff where if it's not, if someone doesn't recognize his importance it's often lost, and so that skews the, the record. Yeah, can I, before we go to the music thing, can I jump back to the recipe thing real yes. quick? Yes. Because I'm going to make a horrible confession. My shrimp boil recipe, the great Northwest Florida shrimp boil recipe, is borrowed from our friends from Little Rock, Arkansas, who come to Florida on vacation. <laughs> and it's not because I never did a shrimp boil before I right. had the recipe. It's that I... I don't remember anyone ever writing down what they were doing. Of course, yeah. And that's the first one that I have that's like, oh, here it's written down. So this will be easy for me now that uh, my grandparents aren't around or my dad isn't uh, doing it all the time. <clears throat> so so I think, of course, that changes how these things work, right? And like you were saying, a lot of it was probably based on what was in season at the time. Like, And there's mm-hmm. different kinds of shrimp. It's not the same kind of shrimp all the time. There's cold right. shrimp, there's bay shrimp, there's all this... So, but now we have it locked in on this one recipe, but that recipe, yeah, it comes from um, people from landlocked Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, I wonder, I start to wonder how much of our memory about what we ate growing up that was Southern is shaped by kind of a commercialization of Southern culture, mm-hmm. like the, um, what is it, grits, girls raised in the South, or all this <laughs> stuff that you get sold, is like, we eat fried chicken and we right. eat this. It's like, I don't know, we ate spaghetti a lot growing up too. Oh, that's and definitely true. We ate yeah. peel and cheese from the commissary and yeah. we ate like, you know, um, I, I don't, I wonder how much of it is kind of back implanted in your memory. It's like, oh, we ate peach cobbler every day. It's right. Like that, we didn't at all, but we did eat a lot of what was in season, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean we're a product of, of the times, right? And we certainly... Um, in my family, you know, I, it was all mashed up. Like we were eating fruity pebbles and, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, soupy taters or whatever, like, you know, something super like old school, um, you know, and, and fried chitlins and, you know, um, 
lots of like pea, like um, field peas, like black, not black eyed peas, but what we yeah, pink, pink, pink eyed peas, purple hole peas, like lots of different mm-hmm. varieties of peas, you know, where you really carefully like put the um, whole pods of okra on the top at the toward no, the hungry, end right. so it gets you know <laughs> so so it was all mixed up you know and my mom you know my mom would I mean she kind of distinguished her um, her her herself from her mom by refusing to cook certain things like she just kind of drew the line at a certain point where you know and she would say I don't, I don't I'm not a country cook if you want that you got to go visit your mamma or whatever you know there's this idea of like even though she would like fry a pork chop because that's what she liked she wouldn't fry chicken because that was you know too much grease or something and um you know she wouldn't fry any she would hardly fry anything she wouldn't like my grandparents always made like fried okra the old school's style where it doesn't have like a lot of breading on it it's just like it really looks more like stir frying but it has a little cornmeal on it Mm -hmm. and it takes a really long time you do it kind of slowly in a cast iron skillet but yeah she wouldn't do that kind of thing um i think there's a whole generation of women that were liberated from the kitchen they didn't have to be there and as soon as they didn't have to be there they didn't choose to be there my grandmother was raised up at um, uh, not too far, well, where Fontana Lake is now. Their property got flooded out by the mm-hmm. lake, and that's when they moved over the mountain back at about 110 years ago or so. But anyway, she, uh, she um, um, would, my sister would offer to cook some um, beans and cornbread. And she'd say, I've eaten my share of beans and cornbread. Right. I don't want any more of that. And I, I offered to give her a ride up to the mountains. I was going up just to hang out. And I said, do you want to go up to the mountains? And she said, um, I didn't lose anything up there. <laughs> and she just, it felt like a liberation to yeah. not have yeah. to split wood and build fires and cook right. for, uh, you know, I think she had 11 siblings, something right. like that. And uh, she was one of the older ones. Mm-hmm. And it felt like such a burden that settling into TV dinners and Pat mm-hmm. Sajak just <laughs> felt like a great life to her because right. there's a hardship there. and it's uh, Absolutely. Um, in my family, you can see the dis- difference really distinctly because um, my... Um, my mother that's how my mother's mother feels my maternal grandmother feels very much so that way but she grew up in um like smith county mississippi it's kind of near hattiesburg it's in the south um east corner of mississippi and her like family kiln? Mm-hmm. is that near kiln uh, okay. Taylorsville is the name of the town. It's the really boring section of Mississippi. Um, yeah, well, it's super complicated because you know it's also right next to. I, I mean, it's like right. Well, it's well, it's I think it's the Piney Woods, right? Okay. So yeah. there's um, some kind of interesting historical stuff that goes on there. Um, and then it's also um, Smith County borders like Jones yep. County, the Free State of Jones, oh, all yeah, that yeah. you know kind of stuff. So it's right next to that. And then also Jesse James was oh. like. Um, there. So I apologize. If someone has to drive from New Orleans <laughs> through right, Tuscaloosa, yeah. that's But it is, I think it's Plains or whatever. It's kind of flat. Yeah, it's really and it's, flat. Um, yeah, it, a lot it, of truck stops. Potomac County. <laughs> well, no, right? That's actually an interesting thing. Other side of the family, but my, oh, my mom's family. So my mom's great, my mom's great-grandfather ran a ferry on the Yachna River. <laughs> so, right, that's completely like Faulkner territory, but that's like, you know, Lafayette County, um, a little bit about maybe Panola County or um, in that area. But back to Sorry. the class. No, back to the kind of um, this idea of like 
of escaping. I mean, there's there's so much that you can say about women, um, roles of women, and you know, women's liberation, and all these kinds of things, so how they're mixed up in culture and food culture, but. It's really a different experience between my mom's family and my dad's family. Where in a, in a lot of ways, my mom, my mom's um, father was like in the Air Force, so they had um, they were like a little more uh, obtained some sort of middle class status that my dad's family never did. Um, but her mother came; her family were um, you know were sharecroppers, so they were. It wasn't so much of that they didn't have anything, which they didn't, but it really was that they, that um, sort of animosity, the, the relationship between the the sharecropper and the um, or the tenant and the and the landowner, that sort of idea, um, and I guess also maybe just seeing the other like feeling poor because other people around you had more than what you had, whereas my dad's family grew up in you know completely the sticks. Um, and they never had anything. And my dad talks about how, you know, when he was a kid that he, you know, would, would, the kids would like scratch the sweet potatoes out of the ground and eat them raw before they really matured. And I said, why would you do that? And, you know, and he said, you know, cause we were hungry, you know, this idea of like that kids were little scavengers, right? So they just kind of had to fend for themselves or stuff. Well, his, both of his parents were raised, um, in that same area of, of kind of northern Calhoun County or whatever, and no one had anything, but they all seemed to have had happy lives because they had independence, and they felt like they were kind of in control of their own, to a certain extent, their own destinies or whatever. And my and his, like, his parents have only fond memories of the past and, the, you know, and the idea of... Um, so I think, you know, it's like, it's, I always say it's like poor and then there's like landless poor. So like, you know, a very, very different types of poor. Um, and so that's how her mom is, you know, it's like, oh no, I don't miss any of it. You know, um, I'm very excited, very, very happy to, you know, um, live in my little 19, you know, my, my fifties ranch, brick ranch, you know, and with linoleum floors and, um, you know, a little screen porch and all that. She doesn't miss it at all. She would never, my grandfather always wanted to move back out to the um, country and she was like, nope, not not interested at all. So, I mean, I think it's it's all over the place, right? There's like different different experiences of different things. And, um, but yeah, she did a little same, she, she was the same kind of person where if you, I, I just inherited um, that maternal grandmother's like recipe collection or whatever and um, it's just full of recipes of things I never ate. It's all the things that she clipped out of, you know, cookbooks and newspapers. And some of them, some, a few of the things in there she cooked, but mostly all the things that she cooked for us were things, because my grandfather was really, he recognized the value of it in some degree. And he would always say, you got to come here to get this country cooking, you know, because you're, your your mama ain't gonna make you no turnip greens, you know. It's like you got to come get your grandma to make you some turnip greens. That kind of idea. He he recognized it, and I don't know if it's just because he left and came back, but he was in the Air Force, so he had some some awareness of of what what he had or what you know what was part the food culture that he valued. Um, but back to what you were saying about women. And all the different choices that they made. I think in my mom, for my mom, like she made a lot of kind of like, um, of like 
sort of that idea of the Sandra Lee semi-homemade stuff, you know, a lot. So she really focused on these kind of like special occasion, barely special occasion with not much time, you know, like Sakatumi cake and these kind of like souped up cake mix cakes and stuff like that. She really enjoyed doing that type of cooking. But yeah, she, um, I mean, she, she worked and she definitely resented um, and did not enjoy um, the day to day cooking right. stuff. So. I think that's common for a lot of people. I mean, I go out of my way. I cook for the school that I work at, and then I have a nephew living with me, so I cook for him, and I do a lot of cooking. And I always think I'm going to get tired of it, but I never do. I guess when I get tired of eating, I'll get tired right. of cooking. Yeah, I, I I continue to enjoy it. I do have a lot of stress around food um, just because um, I feel very... I'm very aware of all the things I'm not passing on to Mo, my child, because, you know, he, like, he has an extremely different um, experience, like, growing up than I do, you know, and it's like, I can see certain things that he eats that are cultural things, like, he does like grits, he loves okra, um, you know, but, like, I'm constantly, like, he just hates pea, there's all these things that I grew up eating that he hates, and, and his favorite food is, like, you know, Chinese food, and all these type of things, and I'm just always like, who are you, and, um, <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's, it's fine, it's just that I have this, um, I feel like I have this responsibility to expose him to things that are part of my culture, because it's the last chance, I mean, and there's pretty much no possible way that his kids would have, you know, it just seems like we're witnessing the end of some, like, food traditions. Don't worry, after the whole world economy collapses in a few years, and climate <laughs> right, change, we'll, go back. we'll go back to it. Everyone will be wanting to live in the hills of Mississippi. They're just scratching out raw sweet yeah, potatoes. Yeah, we will be scratching out raw sweet potatoes very soon. They're not poisonous like, uh, uh, like, our, like russet potatoes, so that's but, one plus. But they'll be baked in the ground. So. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice sweet potatoes. Yeah. <laughs> Can I ask you a very specific food question? Yes. Okay, so uh, I live in Louisiana now, but I grew up eating gumbo, but what I eat... I like Florida gumbo better, but mm-hmm. most people are not aware that there is Florida gumbo. And uh, I don't particularly like Louisiana gumbo, which is brown and with a roux. Mm-hmm. But then most people in Louisiana, I tell that, are horrified. So do you have any encounters mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. these other kinds of gumbo, like the kind of gumbo I eat? Yes. Um, for one, gumbo is sort of talking to people about uh, like kimchi um, mm-hmm. in that everyone hates everything except for what's there. Yeah, so right. it's sort of part of the um, your pride of your, like your familial pride right. or whatever that you only like your grandmother's gumbo or yeah. something. I only like my grandmother's kimchi. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like so same thing. You No one ever, will ever like any kimchi that, that you... No Koreans will ever like any kimchi. I mean, not... I have a... My closest friend is Korean, so we always have this kind of conversation. Um... So it's similar, um, but with gumbo, even in even in Louisiana, there are people who make gumbo without a roux. The roux is more common for sure. What, what area is there a regionality of that, or is there? I mean, I know um, I I know African Americans um, recipes in mm. in New Orleans that mm. are gumbos without a roux. Mm. Um, and in general, there's an idea that like a um, like if you have, um, especially if there's like a seafood gumbos or gumbo, which usually have okra in them, yep, some of those fine. you'll definitely see that don't have roux in them. There's an the idea that like seafood is lighter. Yeah. You know the flavor of the roux kind of overpowers things. I agree um, with all of this. I make it with tomato, a tomato base, and right. okra and shrimp. Yeah, and that. Do you use filet? Nope. Yeah, that's more of the. Um, 
Yeah, so usually, although there are no rules really in gumbo because people mix everything up, but traditionally you would have gumbo or filet in a gumbo uh, and not yeah. most. And usually most filet gumbo. You mean like roux or... or no, I meant okra. gumbo as in okra. okra. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Gumbo you. being the African you. word for okra, and in my mind it just got, gets confused. But yeah, okra or um, filet mm-hmm. in the gumbo, and usually okra is always with seafood, although, mm-hmm. like I said, this is just general kind of assumptions, and then the rules are broken all the time. And then filet gumbo tends to be more of the... Um, like game and game, uh, yeah. Like like um. Because the filet sausage, duck, duck gumbo, uh, chicken yeah. and sausage gumbo, usually are filet like gumbo. I want duck gumbo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but interestingly, I was just in the part of Florida where you're from because uh-huh. it's where my family um, vacations. Uh-huh. And yeah, everyone's family seems to these days. Oh, oh well. Please, please leave. When you when you <laughs> come to when you when you are driving around, we were in Grayton Beach, yeah, but in that entire area. Um, I mean, Grayton's pretty mild compared to, um, like, whatever, all those... Watercolor. Co- yeah, community, seaside. seaside, all those things that are... Anyway, we're, we're, like, you know, at the Publix or whatever, and I was just like, why are there so many Mississippi... Not just Mississippi. They tend to be specifically yeah. North Mississippi. Well, you've seen the beach it's in Biloxi. You know why they're there. Yes, exactly. But everyone in Alabama goes mostly to their own beaches because there are nice beaches in yeah. Alabama, but they're... Yeah. The beaches... In, no, Orange Beach is nice. Gulf Shores, right. Right. And Orange Beach is where, yeah, a lot of people know in Alabama go. But, yeah, in, in Mississippi, and specifically North <coughs> Mississippi, they're so far away from yeah. our Gulf <laughs> Coast. Well and it's nothing like the it's nothing like the Gulf Florida beaches, which are just really pretty. Um so they yeah, you are driving around it's like Lee County, which is like Tupelo, mm. Lowndes and Octavial County, which is like Starfall and um Columbus, which is exactly where like the triangle kind of aware right. where my family's from in North Mississippi. Um but but we had we went to several different places um out to eat in the week that we were there and I don't know why, but we kept like trying the gumbo, and uh-huh. um, one of the places that we got it, which did have like a lot of fresh seafood, and it was like was like soup. It was super thin. Mm-hmm. There was definitely no no roux right. whatsoever in it, and it definitely it had the best flavor. It was not what most people who were eating with us really thought of as gumbo, right. but, but at the, the same time, yeah, exactly. And what I think of gumbo is is the other is that exactly. Um, so yeah, so I would just say everybody's gumbo is different, you know, each family has their own pot, put it that way or something. Um, and yeah, to me, I like, um, I I like all, I like, I like all, all of them, but not the really thick one, not the super thick one. Yeah, I don't like the really brown, thick, I can't do it. But the, I'm going to reveal the secret to my grandmother's gumbo is... That you boil the shrimp first and take the water from the mm-hmm. shrimp to make the rice. So that it's all tied together with the same flavor. I have seen recipes for gumbo, which are some of my favorite ones, where it's like d- day one. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> boil the crabs. Right. Save that water right, to right, then, right. you know. There's a lot of saving stuff. Yeah, later. and then, you know, so... Step two, step, you know, day two or whatever. And then and then some people will even say, don't eat it until day three because it's better right. once all the, That's you know, true. things have time to, like, meld. But you have to be able to do all that while not overcooking the seafood that's in there. Mm-hmm. So it's like... That's a tough one. Yeah. That's what we just... I do just shrimp. It makes it a lot easier because shrimp are pretty... I mean, you can mess up shrimp, yeah. but it's hard. 
That's the one thing when I'm cooking that I'm bad about is saving pot liquor and uh, mm, uh, mm-hmm. uh, like keeping stock in the freezer for later use, things like that, uh, yeah. which I used to do more. And now, for one thing, I have a very small uh, fridge and freezer uh, where I live. But, yeah, stock uh, takes up a lot of room, so you uh-huh. need to figure out a... I always try to like reduce it so that it's sort of like... You can then add at least half of it back in water and still get something decent or whatever. But yeah, seafood stocks. If you eat a gumbo that does is not made with any sort of seafood stock, you're like, this doesn't taste like anything. Um, except for yeah, gravy, which is basically what the roux is, right? It's yeah. grease and flour. Yeah. Oh, so uh, like, are you talking about food? I was going to get you to talk about music, and you already made the transition seamlessly earlier, and then I brought you back mm-hmm. out of it. But I wanted to ask you quickly, also, too, you said at the beginning that where you live now around Durham is, is not the South, so why, why is that? Well, I shouldn't say Durham isn't okay. the South, because, um, um, I mean, there are lots of Souths, right, first mm-hmm. of all, so there's not one South, for sure. But Durham, um, even though to most recent um, migrants, which, I mean, I'm not exactly, I'm, I've been there since um, 2000, but I'm, I'm not exactly in Durham. But to most recent, I mean, Durham's grown a ton in the last few years. I mean, they probably don't, most people don't probably know anything about the African-American population in Durham. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is still the South. It still very much so feels mm-hmm. the South. It's just kind of not part of this, like, kind of burgeoning downtown thing that's happening right now, which feels very... Um, I don't know, very anywhere, any town, any, any, mm. you know, city, USA, very, uh, it's like, um, definitely, um, influenced by what's going on in like the larger, like coastal cities, mm-hmm. of, whether it's like San Francisco, LA, New York, in, in North Carolina, I think in particular, it's probably influenced by what's going on in like New York. Cause we have a ton of people moving down. The younger folks are, Mostly when they, you know, leaving cities like um, Brooklyn and, um, like, leaving, like, New York and stuff to find a more affordable place to live. But where I live in, um, or where I have lived in Chapel Hill area, just because it's a university, it's a very transit place. And um, in Chapel Hill and Carborough, there's, I mean, it's pretty rare that I talk to anyone who has... um, more than you know maybe their parents came there because they were professors mm-hmm. but that's not the same as like you know before that right. like people have been you know pretty pretty continuously in an area for you know at least five generations if not six or seven right. um so um it doesn't have that long kind of history um an attachment to the area now right as soon as you move out of the triangle it's just like being in mississippi and it's not it's not you very different apex? From that. well apex is changing too but <laughs> For sure, when you get to places like, you know, like Mebane and um, like Burlington, all the, all those areas, like kind of the city, the smaller towns and cities around Greensboro, um, they all feel very and, and and to the east, all the if you get out of kind of the Raleigh metro area, it starts feeling very much so like you know rural south, agrarian south anywhere. Um, and, and in North Carolina, um, there's a book called um, Poor Whites at the Antebellum South. Mm-hmm. I cannot remember the name of the person who wrote it. But um, it, it's specifically talking about in the Piedmont area of North Carolina uh-huh. and the Piedmont uh, and, and Mississippi, and nor- like North Mississippi in particular. And so those areas have a lot. I mean, they're literally this. Uh, in, 
at least in the in the white in the white populations, literally like the same, you know, lineage of people. Like it's uh, you know it's um it people moved down from into North Carolina and then down into a large part of them into into Mississippi. Yeah, I keep Tennessee finding that a lot with my like I've been looking um like periodically like once or twice a year I'll go back through all uh um with the ancestry stuff. And so I've been finding recently, so most of the people with the last name Cheek that you find are in that area of North Carolina around mm-hmm. Durham. Like even when I was in town for the conference, I was mm-hmm. up in this little town up in the mountains and they had a family named Cheek there that was on like the bulletin board. But then you find that, yeah, through the 1800s, they start going out towards like Western Tennessee out by Nashville. Yeah. And then out through Arkansas. Exactly. Warren area. County, Tennessee. I think yeah. it was a large county around Nashville, but um, same, my family. And, and I look at like other families you know, a lot of it's just the time. There weren't a lot mm-hmm. of, like, everything hadn't been designated into little counties right, and little right. towns. So it's like the counties that were first formed. So as the in, as the lands opened up, right. i.e., they yeah. they moved the Native American population yeah. off the land, then th- that that those kind of first areas are where um, you know the sort of European settlers moved in. Um, Cheeks. So um, in Durham, there's like Cheek Road. Um, there's definitely a lot of Cheeks specifically around Durham County. Yes, that whole area. That's that's we mm-hmm. we did that area. I wanted to say that um, uh, Poor Whites of the Antebellum South is by Charles C. Bolton. And he's and it's a, from Duke Press. Okay, Just the book is from Duke Press. Press. I think he teaches. He's a professor at at USM University of Southern Mississippi in Hattiesburg. Oh, really. I'm pretty sure. It all comes back to Hattiesburg. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, which is, um, you know, it's, um, yeah, that's a kind of interesting area that I haven't looked in a ton. Um, I just know a little bit about it. Hattiesburg? Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously we know some really famous things about Hattiesburg, right? Isn't that like the birthplace of the KKK or something? Is Hattiesburg? I thought it was Pulaski, Tennessee. Oh, yeah. Pulaski, Tennessee. That's, a, yeah, that's another Although I do, I, I, and someone from Mississippi, you probably get this, but every time I drive across the border, and I was working in Mississippi all summer, but every time I drive across the border, I forget what your state flag looks like, and I'm taken aback for a Always second. I'm like, surprised. what's going on there? And then that is flying over a public building, and yeah. it's like, oh, yeah, and then yeah. Mississippi. That's my, um, yeah, f- um, my, my mother-in-law, they came down to Mississippi for something, and she came oh, back yeah, saying, they like, still fly the Confederate flag down there. And I was like, okay, yeah, some people do fly it, but you probably were just talking about that. Just like, flag. I mean, over like public buildings, though. And I was like, unfortunately, that's the state yeah, flag. The state flag. <laughs> it's 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 really horrible, but um, yeah, I mean, there there are a good group of people who are working to um, to change that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a it's a uphill battle in Mississippi for sure. Okay. Well, I think we're out of time, so thanks a lot, April, for talking to us. Yeah. Next time we'll get you to talk about music. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> right. Happy. Thank you very much. Thank you.